I'm Alice Marie. Hello and welcome to the European Aquaponics Podcast, the podcast for aquaponic producers, researchers, suppliers and enthusiasts. The European Aquaponics team busy ourselves seeking out inspiring, disruptive, innovative and sometimes provocative stories from the aquaponics sector to bring to you, dear listeners. In this episode, we're taking a bit of a different approach. Quite a lot of the interactions that we have via the website and the questions that I find from people when I'm teaching courses are about how to raise money for running your aquaponics venture. To do something a little bit different in this episode, I'm going to share with you a recording of a session that I had for an aquaponics class with Kate Hoffman of Grow Up Urban Farms in London, talking about how they raised money first for their small-scale community aquaponics demonstration project, the Grow Up Box, and then how they raised um, investment and got funded through a government technology programme to put together their more extensive commercial-scale farm in London. I've been sat on this recording for quite a long time and I'm really excited to finally be able to share it with you. That in just a minute. Before we get into this episode, we do have a little housekeeping to do. The European Aquaponics Podcast is a product of the European Aquaponics Association. We aim to foster the growth and development of the aquaponics sector. And we do this through collaboration, innovation and knowledge sharing through our website, holding the space for exchange of research, knowledge and technology, via monthly-ish newsletter, Facebook group and our podcast, and we hold an annual-ish convention of our membership focused on disseminating state-of-the-art technology and research, market trends, key challenges for the sector that year, and showcasing inspirational initiatives and hosting face-to-face training workshops and networking for our guests. We also initiate policy recommendations, business collaborations, demonstration projects, technology partnerships and data sharing, as well as actively matchmaking synergies and partnerships to help shape our emerging industry. On our website, www.europeanaquaponicsassociation.org, you will find resources, opportunities, jobs listings, extensive funding opportunities, research listings, a geodirectory, and routes to access numerous resources and services, all designed to make aquaponics accessible to all. We rely on sponsorship and membership to share this podcast with you and our newsletter for free. So please, if you haven't already, join the European Aquaponics Association at www.europeanaquaponicsassociation.org And if you want to have your organisation featured right here, right now on this podcast, please get in touch with us via alicemarie.archer at gmail.com. That's A-L-I-C-E-M-A-R-I-E dot A-R-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. So now over to Bristol, UK for a conversation with Kate Hoffman. And I should add a last minute disclaimer, this conversation was recorded several years ago. So, you know, things have changed a lot on all of our farms and in our businesses since then. But I still think it's just so useful. So listen in. So my name's Kate. I'm the co-founder of a business called Grow Up Urban Farms. 
and we run, we have two farms and actually are about to have two separate businesses because we're actually splitting out what we, what we do. Um, one side of our business is we run a commercial indoor farm it's based in a warehouse. So it's a vertical hydroponic system and a 12 tank, 12 fish tank um, RAS system all interconnected. Um, there's pictures in the slides, so I'll, I'll show that to you. Uh, and the other side of what we do is we have a system called the Grow Up Box, which is a shipping container aquaponic system. The one we have at the moment is a shipping container with a greenhouse on top. Uh, again, there's pictures in the presentation. The commercial farm uh, we sell to restaurants, retailers and um, distributors in London. The shipping container box we use for community engagement, education, workshops um, and actually the one we have at the moment has a greenhouse on top but the one that we are designing next looks like the indoor farm but in a container if that makes sense so it's all a controlled environment system. We actually are now moving towards having two kind of quite separate parts of the, the, the organisation, a limited company that runs the commercial farms and a kick that runs the um, uh, community outreach and, and box side of the business. So um, one of the things I'm also happy to, it's not sort of directly related to, well it is sort of related to funding, I'm also happy to, if you've got questions about uh, legal entities and that kind of thing, um, to... to answer any questions on that. So um, that's what the box looks like. So, so we take a step out across a kick. Yes, good point. A kick is a community interest company. So it is basically the legal entity for a social enterprise. You know, you can anyone can call themselves a social enterprise it doesn't actually mean anything legally. But the, the legal setup for the company, the way you would register a company as a social enterprise, one of the ways is as a, as a community interest company. There are certain restrictions on... Um, you're okay as well, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So there are more restrictions on how you can use the resources and assets that belong to the organisation than there are with the limited company. Um, but like a limited company, a kick can either be limited by shares or by guarantee. So you... You can set up kicks that have shareholders, but generally speaking, most kicks don't do that because they don't want to be giving money and profit out to shareholders. They want to be reinvesting it back into the organisation. So, um, yeah. Whereas with a limited company, you know, that's a lot more. Well, it's a lot more straightforward, I suppose. Yeah, you, you're registered with Companies House. You have to file your financial returns. I mean, you do with a kick as well, but. Yeah, for the purpose of funding, I guess the reason we became a kick was because a lot of funders won't fund for-profit yeah. companies. Mm -hmm. So if they're using, you know, philanthropic money for you to develop your assets, you shouldn't then be able to sell that and make money personally. So that's that's why we did it, so that we could access certain types of funding. But we're conversely limited by shares. Oh, okay. But um, we're not. I don't think we'll ever use that function mm. because we're also a not-for-profit in our in our constitution, mm. which kind of annuls the capacity to do anything with the shares mm. unless we chose to change it. So I think there are certain you might find that there are certain funding bodies, like i.e. philanthropic individuals, who would invest to take shareholding, but would specifically want to invest in a kick. 
So I think that I can see that there are scenarios. I just think it is more unusual, isn't it? Um, That's why we left it open <laughs> because we thought that was the kind of thing we'd want, where somebody yeah. doesn't want a high return on their investment. Right, but they want to be yeah. part of it. Yeah. Um, Essentially, the return on investment is capped, so you you can't take more than forty percent of your profits and put that into dividends and the dividends are capped as well so there's two layers of compression of how much can be drawn out of the business that way um yeah so uh our two farms that's the grow up box um that's where we started uh we set the business up three and a half years ago now and what we were always interested in was commercial scale production um, in urban in an urban context, hence our name. Uh, but what we knew we had to start with was a system that was manageable and that we could build, you know, to get going with, but that was big enough that we could start to test the market with the produce and start getting some production data from and, and all that kind of thing, and also start to build our reputation as growers. Um, so off the back of building that and running it and selling the produce to customers, getting feedback on that, understanding what the market was, we raised the money to build um, the commercial farm, which looks like that. Um, there's much better pictures and videos on our website than I can show you in, in slides, so um, I'm not going to spend too much time up front talking about what the farm looks like, but obviously the decision that we made to go from having that small shipping container to having a 600 square foot, 600 square meter, 6,000 square foot warehouse that we kitted out with commercial growing system, because that was what we wanted to do, that made, um, that, that meant we had to go down sort of certain funding paths in order to get ourselves there. So I suppose it's, it's part of the story. Um, that funding and financing journey, so just to sort of talk you through what that's looked like for us over the last well it's just four years really not three and a half years so um, I guess the first type of financing that we used was sweat equity which but you know working for free um, and that you know still comprises a certain amount of what we do in the sense that I think it does for any sort of project, any project you're running that you feel really passionately about and that you want to put your heart and soul into, the reality is you'll probably end up putting more in than you'll be getting out in a paycheck. So there's still a certain part of that. We then did a Kickstarter campaign to build the box. So I can talk a little bit about crowdfunding, uh, how that worked for us doing Kickstarter and... Um, I can tell you, I can also talk a little bit about the other kinds of crowdfunding, so equity-based, um, although we have decided so far not to go down that route. I can talk about why we've made that decision as well. We were part of an accelerator um, that, that gave us seed funding to, to support the business. We then applied for some Innovate UK funding through their Agritech Catalyst, we, which was quite a significant grant um, we got some sort of smaller grant funding from uh, an organisation called Urban Food Roots I think they're only London based 
but who they are is kind of irrelevant. They are a small grant-giving organisation, so I talk about that in terms of like what that's like to go for sort of smaller, smaller grants. Um, and then the majority of the investment that we raised to build the commercial farm came from a social impact fund. So I'll talk a little about, bit about them. Uh, and then at the moment now we are having built that first farm, looking ahead to how we go about scaling the business and building more farms. We are doing an equity fundraising round, um, inviting people to invest in the business. So I have information in my presentation about all of those things, but kind of based on what Alice said, it might be more interesting if you guys told me what you're interested in, what you'd like to look at, how a bit about you know where your head's at in terms of money and finance for for your own projects or, or businesses. I don't mind. So you've got funding from three or four different places. Well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> Plus, obviously, so uh, that, that's why I was supposed to finish by saying because then, yeah. So. <laughs> sort of the big introduction is there was no, there's no such thing as easy money. Seven different sources, and actually eight, really, because the thing that's not included in that original list, which obviously is a really important source of funding, is revenue. Uh, actually generating revenue from business activities. So that's probably of eight altogether. Um, and yes, all of those. And, and at what point did you, did you start making money? So we didn't start making we didn't start generating revenue until we had this farm up and running in March this year so that was a good three years after we decided to set the business up we're kind of just a year behind you I guess and we followed a fairly similar path except at the point where you got the agritech yeah Yeah. so I think it's it's the difference between a business that's based on a production method like aquaponics compared to a service-based business is that if you're selling yourself, you're the only as a service. You know, if you're providing a service, you're the only thing uh, holding you back from starting to generate revenue. Okay, so you, you start obviously you've got the funding from different sources. Now, now you're going commercial. Where you got this funding from? Mm-hmm. Earlier on, you were talking about cap share, uh, profit sharing and all this. Is this all that involved in the commercial side? So we, um, that's, how, that's how kicks are set up. We have only just set up the kick. So we have only just um, diversified that community outreach side of our business. We were always set up as a limited company from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Unless you still manage to get funding as a limited company. Yeah. So, um, is it alone or is it? Uh, it, it was a mix. So the so um, the way that Kickstarter works is you get that money and you get you offer people things in return. So that's rewards-based crowdfunding. So that's not alone. If you meet target. If you yeah, well it depends. It, like different websites. Is, different, isn't it? is, um, is it Kickstarter? You get all the money, but crowdfunding there's another one is if you don't hit the target then yeah so yeah it, the, all the platforms tend to have different rules um, but really sort of the yeah so the main difference between the two types of crowdfunding is 
you're either offering people rewards or you're offering them equity. Yeah. So Kickstarter, Indiegogo, um, uh, those are rewards-based platforms. Crowdcube, Cedars. What were you offering? We offered people tours of the box. They come and visit. We offered people bags of salad delivered to their homes. We offered them handwritten postcard with a poem on. Uh, the chance to see on the side there to have their name painted. So we were really inventive with the things that um, we so came. Not actually giving them any money back. So Correct. It's, just... it's a reward. It's the, there's no long-term financial transaction there. Whereas with equity-based crowdfunding, they're buying shares in your company. Um, and then so you don't have any of that, do you? So it's just you guys. Not from the crowd. Sorry, not from the crowdfunding. Um, if I go, if I carry on going around, I'll tell you about the sort of nature of each different kind. So the accelerator, that's also well for us, that was just um, essentially like a grant. So um, different accelerator or sort of incubator programs work in different ways. Some of them you have to apply to get onto. You get accepted onto the accelerator. They give you a set amount of money, but in return, they do take shares in the business. Um, Climate Kick, the accelerator that we were part of, it's just funding, so they don't take anything in return. You have to provide them with reports, but again, you don't give them. You're not giving them them shares, uh, or it's not, and it's not a loan. I I don't know. <laughs> they call themselves. Yeah, or they just call themselves different things depending on what their sort of marketing strategy is. But the idea is that it's a it's a support system that you can go into that will help you develop your um, business from an idea to you know through to different stages, and usually that will come with um, some financial support as well. Sometimes it's not direct money. You might get I don't know like benefit in kind stuff, so a workspace or access to a lab or that kind of thing. Um, yeah, um, you know, um, training or development, but uh, it can be a source of sort of cash funding. Um, the Agritech Catalyst was the money that we got from Innovate UK. So that is a grant from the government. It is part funding for a project so you, you, you submit a project proposal to them that says this project is going to cost X amount and in the rules for each competition they'll say we, we will fund you know, 60, 70, 30% of the project it tends to be that the bigger the project the smaller, or at least it used to be I don't know if you know if that still is the same way, but it used to be like sort of the bigger the project budget was, the smaller the amount that um, they would they would contribute. Um, so with the stage of Agritech Catalyst funding that we went for, that was a um, late stage research project. So commercial all about commercialisation. They would fund projects of up to a million pounds, and they would fund thirty five percent of them. So you then, if you, even if you get that grant money, in order to actually get the grant money, you have to go out and find the rest of the money to pay for the project. That grant is then paid to you quarterly in arrears, which means that you actually have to have the cash to go out and spend before they'll reimburse you for your costs. So 
Yeah. Um, did you find a favourable bank that would front load you? No. We, um, I guess looking back on it, we kind of winged it a little bit. We kind of said to, we put in our application to Innovate UK, you know, we will raise the rest of this money through private investment. And we didn't actually have it at the time. Mm. And so they give you a conditional grant offer that says, well, we'll give you this money if you raise the rest of it. We then went out and just, so just skipping the Urban Food Roots grant, we were then able to go out and pitch for investment set to, which is where we got our, our social impact investment from, and basically say, well, we're looking for this amount of money to do this project and we've already raised 35% of it, which is basically being paid for through a grant, so it's really de-risks it for the for the investor. So the social impact investment that we raised is from a fund called Ignite Social Enterprise. They are actually set up by Centrica, who are the company who own British Gas. So um, the company who own British Gas decided to put £10 million into a fund to invest in social enterprises that work around energy and environment and that have a demonstrable social impact so um, a measurable and a yeah a meaningful social impact uh, our social impact is around job creation so by scaling the business up to having a commercial farm we've been able to create six jobs so far six full-time jobs so far and the idea is obviously the, the, the bigger we get the more jobs we can create we um, work with a local charity who get young people, young unemployed people into technical and creative careers. So we work with them to recruit everyone locally. Uh, and that was sort of that's that sort of the basis of our social impact model, aside from the environmental impact that we believe that we can have through doing doing aquaponics. So the social impact fund gave us seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds. The grant from Innovate UK was roughly for 350 um, and that was the money that we needed to build the farm and to cover our working capital until we got the production up and running enough to be able to start generating Does revenue. Does that buying the warehouse or you ready for that? We rent the warehouse, um, so it included some of the rent as part of the working capital. Um, but obviously going forward we have to cover the cost of that rent ourselves um, through yeah through generating revenue. So mm -hmm. and I'm taking it's viable it's It's getting there. So we're not at full capacity yet. We just this week got our approval from the local authority to sell the fish. It's taken us a very long time to do that. Not because there were any problems, just because the local authority move very slowly mm. and the environmental health officer is used to assessing kebab shops and cafes not primary production units it's all covered by the same legislation so it was a it was a very slow process to bring them up to speed on what we were doing what the risk factors actually were how we documented everything, you know, all of that kind of thing. Did you find there was no set process for them to follow and you had to give them a little Well, they have their set process to follow in the sense that, you know, they have a list of documents they, they ask for. 
but they didn't know. We would then give them stuff, and they didn't know what they were looking at. So then we'd have to sort of talk them through, talk them through stuff. So absolutely no. Yeah, I should say like no. They weren't hostile. There were no. There were no barriers to it or anything. No one was resistant. It just took a long time to. So maybe that's something we could put together with Blackqua, and we could use your experience so that other people in other cities can have like. A document that they can hand the authority. That's yeah, I mean, like, like uh, it's more than one document, but yeah, or yeah. something that brings them together, like ties yeah. it together, and maybe connects to CFAS as parts of it as well, so that they understand that there's rigor in the farming. Yeah, project. right. So that was part. Of, so that's part of the issue is that the CFAS regulation part of it is in absolutely no way connected to the food safety part of it so the people we're speaking to at environmental health in in newham our local authority didn't know what cfas was you know they have no visibility of that so yeah there's definitely i think that's sort of building that whole regulatory picture is important not just for you if you're running a project or a business but because of all the different stakeholders you're going to have to uh bring on board you can hire a city planner or a planning consultant for stuff like that there's one down in devon i work with and they have an architect and a city planner and so planners won't be able to help you with food safety no um they won't know and and regulations pardon the zoning regulations are just such a nightmare um we again we had i mean we we wrote our planning application ourselves Um, we did have to apply for a change of use. Did you be, have you had to do that for here? We haven't yet. Essentially, this is just B eight, so it's just yeah. industrial. Yeah, light industrial. Yeah. No, it's heavy, it's heavy industrial, industrial here. Okay. We're lucky because the other units we looked at were light industrial, and we would have had to apply yeah. to up. Yeah, so that's so yeah. we. But we're not supposed to have a cafe. You know, there's yeah, things yeah, yeah, that yeah. don't fit in that planning set. So we we will have to look at asking but you can do your planning applications in retrospect and it doesn't make any difference to us in a way we still we still need an office space with a kitchenette and things like that so if it's not allowed to be an eatery it doesn't mean we wouldn't have built it so I think in our case it'll be just we'll we'll say well this is what we've done will you allow us to use it that way but it's an industrial estate. It's not going to make the traffic flow heavier. It's not going to smell worse than the metal spraying shop that was in here before. It's not going to be worse for the environment. So there's, there's very little that they could actually get upset about, I think. Absolutely. And again, like with the food safety, you know, yes, it takes a long time to go through the planning process. And yes, you have to submit all the documents they ask for, but they weren't resistant about it. They thought it was a cool, sustainable mm. use of a building. So, yeah. Um, you have to find friendly local government people to help you find a way? Or? Mm. It's always worth being nice to the people in the council. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, but generally speaking, <coughs> the people who work in regeneration or planning or environmental health they're just excited to be approached by interesting opportunities, you know. So if you if you're coming to them saying, "I want to set this up, but this is the impact I want to have," <laughs> no. I was all right. He was very supportive of this project up until he became mayor. 
and then he was too busy. So now he's not mayor anymore, I think it's a good time. I might just wait for him to have a couple of months holiday and then <laughs> get him back on board. Like, I was at the School for Social Entrepreneurs and he did our graduation and was really excited about what we're doing and I, but I knew him from before because he used to be part of the green drinks in the city so he's been around a long time that's quite good like networking yourself in the community and knowing the faces and them knowing you already makes it a lot easier like yeah yeah you need some good contacts when you're doing the generator stuff or doing the um, oh Oh, when we were on the, the development, yes, on the programme, yes. Um, but generally, I would actually say, like, what well, you know, so going along to informal drinks and th- those sort of networking events or talks, that kind of thing, is also a really good way of, um, of meeting people. But so the nice thing about being on an incubator or an accelerator is that, generally speaking, you get to meet other startups or organisations who might be working on completely different projects and ideas yours but you're kind of at the same stage so it's a really good way of sharing ideas and experiences with people from that point of view and then those people you know later down the line you never know where their projects are going to go versus yours they could end up being partners or suppliers or customers so um, and you get like group therapy for entrepreneurs where you can sit around (laughs) like this and be like ah and then help each other out yeah so it's Part of that license that you got from the council does that does that include the avatar? Um, yes, so that is specifically it's the fishery side of things that they are specifically um, interested in regulating, approve, approving. I should say, not regulating. Yeah, so they're actually there's so not huge waste. So it's all stainless steel. Well, so we don't actually um, process any of our fish on site. We harvest, we kill them, and we pack them directly onto ice and ship them straight out the door. That's enough. Yeah, so fresh on ice is the least health and safety yeah. route. As soon as you start filleting, you essentially move into the commercial kitchen side, and there's a lot more to worry about. But that's not to say you shouldn't do it. It's just, it depends on what you want your business to be. The more you want to have the different parts of the value chain inside your company, which can add a lot of value to the company, then the more you have to deal with. Um, and I guess, in a sense, it might be worth, once you've got several farms, having a facility or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the reality was, um, the reality is when we designed and built Unit 84, the commercial farm, because of the cost of because our operating costs we had to focus well we chose to focus a lot of that design and effort on how you could maximize our yield per square meter in the building and where we didn't so where we then chose not to invest time and, and money and effort was on our process and packaging facilities because we wanted to give as much to growing space as possible so we have one single um, process and packaging area and if the, the risk of cross-contamination and the risk, uh, sort of the health hazards associated with using the same area for packing and processing fish and salads would just be too high for it to, to make it worth our while. Just, it's just much better for us to not do any of the processing of the fish um, on site. So it was a decision, yeah, I, I suppose going forwards, 
we probably would like, as Alice said, to be able to do a bit more of that value chain ourselves. Um, we are we are going to be limited by the types of customers we can sell the fish to because it can only be people who are happy to take whole fish. Um, I would yeah. think that opened up the market for you selling whole fish as well as filleted, as well as skin. But that's, but that's what I'm saying, yeah. So for now, we can only do whole fish because we don't process it at all. But in the future, we would want to have those facilities to be able to, to, to do um, more, of the, more of the options. There's, there's plenty of other ways of doing it apart from having building your own processing facilities yourself and having to get that certified. You know, there's people you can work with, there's, I mean, fishmonger, you know, you could just partner with a fishmonger, for example, who would sell and prepare all of your fish and, you know, there's, they've obviously got the facilities to, to do that and depending on the sorts of volumes, there are other, um, yeah, sort of, not slaughterhouses, but like processing houses, basically, for... It depends on what fish you choose yeah. to do as well, because trout you can easily add value to by doing smoking and filleting and pâtés and things like that, because there's a market for mm. it. Are you on tilapia again? Uh, in the farm we are, yeah, in the box we have carp, actually. So mm. tilapia, essentially, yes, you can sell tilapia fillets, but it's a low fillet weight fish, mm. so you lose a lot of the fish yeah. you, you make a huge amount of waste whereas if you sell it whole you've got quite a lot of people that will take it whole so fishmongers especially asian pan asian places they're really used to handling tilapia and they want it whole yeah, and then because we're mostly working with eels it's either whole on ice or smoked whole so we're kind of we don't need as much facility because mm. the smoker is going outside so mm. it's not that much deal with. Is the whole fish because of the whole poor quality Chinese import tilapia? Is that why they want the whole fish? Or? No, they buy it whole on import mm. as well. Like if you go to an Asian supermarket, I, I don't know because it's your your market, you know it better actually. Well, I, so I think it's both. I mean, people are in, in Asian cuisine, they are used to cooking the fish whole, so they're, they're happy to be given it whole. But I think the being able to show the whole fish, demonstrate the quality, you know, have it delivered to somebody, uh, sealed in a box that says this fish was farmed in East London, you know, harvested on this date, being able to sh show that um, traceability is, is really important. Um, yeah, and there are, you know, there is a lot of poor quality tilapia available on the market, frozen and a bit sad. Most um, of it, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's a cat. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's, again, it's another way of... It's a differentiator. And it's also saying, well, actually, this is a premium product. It's freshly harvested for you. Uh, and that can often work, um, work quite well. So. How do you price your products compared with, like, the standard fare that isn't locally produced? So, that with the fish, that's... It's probably a bit different from the from the salad. So with the fish, the pricing model is basically a combination of sort of what we have to charge to cover the cost of producing it. So you work backwards. Partly that we so we partly work backwards, but then also partly work with because it's mostly going to be going to so for the 
fish that we're selling to restaurants, we have to work backwards with the chefs as well because they'll have a set price per meal that they need to achieve in terms of the cost of their ingredients. So we have to be able to, to meet some of that. And then they, they will pay a small premium for fresh, locally produced fish, but they've still got their margins that they need to make. With the retailers, you can be a little bit more... So, like, with a gross... I mean, when I say retail, I mean any, any size retail, actually. You can price it a little bit more based on how premium a product is. So you, if you, again, sort of saying this is locally farmed... Actually, you know, you can you can charge a lot more for locally sustainably farmed fish than you can for frozen imported fish. So it works both ways. Um, so just um, it, are there any of, of my of my heads of lettuces? Is there anything there that people would like have been thinking about? Any of those things people have been thinking about themselves that people would, that you would like to go into a bit more of a a deep dive on. So is there a database that you can find out all the um, all the options for getting grants? Can you just there are there are loads of different places unfortunately. So um, there are companies you can pay to have access to their database of grants. We've never done that personally because um, they tend to be quite expensive. There is... Um, if you go on like the Social Enterprise UK website, they quite often update their list of funding sources. Um, and there's other similar organisations like Social Enterprise UK where they'll sort of have a list. Um, in terms of databases, the one that we've used um, just to sort of keep an eye on what we think might be out there is called Jobs for Jobs for Grants or something ridiculous like that. Um, I can have a look. But we like, used to use GrantNet, but I think it's disappearing. Oh, really? I don't know. But with BACRA, we're trying to aggregate mm. grants, so we're trying to get ourselves on the mailing lists of the grant offers yeah. and then posting them in to the news and the monthly newsletter but we're still building up our relationships with the funders to do that and it's very regional as well so London yes. gets specific sets of grants things like Innovate tend to be national so they might be Scotland specific or England specific but they're not generally as regionally tied mm. um, it's so, a pain actually Yeah. the activity of finding who's offering money there doesn't tend to be a limit. I mean, the limit is your time. Because the reality is that... Quite time-heavy. It's, it's really time-heavy because most... I think the reason why most grant applications get turned down is not because it's not a good idea, but because it's not a well-written application. So, um, okay, since we started to talk about this, why don't I go into my bits about... So, I have an example here of a question from a grant application this is for a grant for £2,000 um, it could only be used for um, operating costs so labour in fact it might even have been just for labour so often you'll find with grants 
that you can either only use them for capital investment or you can only use them for paying people's salaries. There will often be sort of um, limits on how you're allowed to use them. <laughs> you can't have chocolate biscuits. Um, so this one we were specifically applying to develop a bit more of a structured volunteer program. Um, so it was about basically paying for someone to do some coordination around that and, and putting um, good processes in place for us to be able to bring people on as volunteers and, and teach them about aquaponics and um, teach them about how to engage with people. So the challenge with writing grant applications is that you're often given word limits. You've got all the stuff you want to get across about how great your idea is and you know you want you do want in that application for your passion to come across because in the end it is another human being reading your application it's not a robot so the more interesting and exciting you can make it the better but you've got to answer the question so the um yeah this i know it looks like it's three questions but this is actually one question why are you applying? What problems are you helping this to solve? And how will it make a difference? Um, I always find with writing grant applications that the best, the best place to start is by doing bullet point answers for each question, because then you can really see whether you've answered what they're asking for. So if there's three points to the question, you should have three bullet points at least sort of showing what you're, what you're answering. Um, so. Why are you applying for it to Urban Food Roots? We are applying to Urban Food Roots specifically to support the Grow Up Box project over the next year. That can also be, it's also quite important if you are an organisation, you know, like most of us will be when we start off, we probably have different ideas of different things we want to work on. And if you're applying for a grant, you need to be really clear about specifically what idea you want to use it for or, or what part of your project or organisation. Um, what problems are you hoping this support will solve? Well, we had basically identified that we got a lot of people asking us if they could volunteer, so we knew there was a demand and there was an interest for it, but we didn't have a way of making sure that that experience was um, fulfilling for the people who were volunteering as well as useful for us mm. in terms of having the, the, the labour. So um, the structured programme needed to be able to give people the information that they wanted which was often around understanding about how aquaponics worked and also maybe understanding a bit more about the day-to-day -day maintenance of an aquaponic system but if they were going to come and volunteer for us we also wanted them to be able to talk about the issues and the challenges facing food systems because that was part of why we'd set the business up and we wanted them to be able to do that in a way that if they were interacting with the public or visitors that they were presenting information well and confident to talk about it. So you know, we had these sort of specific things that we, know, we knew we wanted to um, get out of, the, of using the funding. And then the last bit, how would the urban food routes make a difference to the enterprise? Again, like it's no good putting in a grant application, we just really, really need the money. Or, you know, <laughs> you, have to, you have to sort of come up with a good... Um, measurable or tangible impact and so for us th th that was about saying well look we've got this asset we've got this shipping container farm 
we want to be able to make the most out of it and, and, and maximise our, our social impact. Um, so, yeah, just a little bit of an example of how, even on the, if on the face of it, what looks like quite a straightforward question in a grant, it's really worth, a grant application, it's really worth spending the time breaking down the question, making sure you've answered every point, um, making sure that you've got an answer there that is really compelling and interesting and, you know, because ultimately, with a lot of these grant-making organisations, they're looking for interesting projects to support that they think are going to have a good impact. So you want them to read your application and think, ooh, that does sound interesting. I wonder, you know, that's really interesting what they're planning on doing with the money. Like, I can really, I can see that happening, how they would, you know, how they would get that um, yeah. Has anybody looked at any specific grant applications or? or um, the only thing that reminded me of is how even small grants are like loads of work. Yeah. And the proportion of mm. time to money is it's worse when you're looking at smaller amounts of money, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's something that's really important to bear in mind. Is it? It, it will take you pretty much the same time to fill in to write a good application for two and a half thousand pounds worth of funding than it will for twenty thousand pounds worth of funding because actually it's funding. It, in the end day it's funding so you need to think really carefully about well what is my what is my funding strategy going to be you know how much money do I need to raise overall and therefore how many of these different opportunities am I going to go for how many do I need to go for and is it worth me if I if I know if I've done my costing for building a system or for setting up a, an education program and I know it's going to cost this much if, if I know it's going to cost twenty thousand pounds is it worth me applying for grants that are two thousand pounds? We kind of took the when we were when we were raising the money to build the farm we took the decision that actually because it was a capital intensive project and you know we were asking people to give us money to build something physical and that is more expensive than you know building a piece of software or something like that we decided to only go for much larger amounts of um, funding and investment because otherwise yeah we would have spent the same amount of time applying for little bits here and there Um, yeah we're kind of doing the same but we've split it down so for the garden we will apply for small grants but for the inside we're trying not to go down that route just because yeah we'd have to apply for many but also most of them specify the funding to be for a specific job or project Mm -hmm. so you can't apply for two grand here five grand there ten grand there all for the same thing so that kind of kind of constrains you anyway so we could say we want seven grand for a commercial kitchen, and that would be fine. We could do that, but we couldn't apply then for like at the moment for with the lottery grant that we're doing. We want the kitchen and a van and some of the mm. setup. So it kind of it almost would stop us then applying for those smaller grants as well because you're double funding, which nobody accepts anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. But isn't this funding dry now? Because there's quite a few people who are doing this now. I don't think that funding is drying up particularly if I, if I sort of think about um, 
projects or businesses that I know of and, and sort of what they're managing to do. I think um, it's changing. So I think the requirements, the funder, funder requirements are changing. Um, so one example of that is at quite like a, a big scale, people like um, DFID, so when they're funding, when the government's funding international development, they're heavily moving towards, um, let me get this phrase right, like basically results-based funding. And that is having quite a big influence because that's happening at an international scale in, in terms of international development and aid. That is, I think, having an impact on smaller grant-giving organisations. So there's this move towards results-based um, funding. Now, you can, you can choose to look at that, I suppose, in, in two ways. You might choose to look at that and think, well, okay, that means if I, can demonstrate, if I think I can demonstrate some results, I should still be able to go for that funding. You could look at it in a slightly more cynical way that says I might have to change how I phrase the application that I'm making <laughs> to make it to make it fit the requirements of the, the funding request. So, um, yeah. So by results, you don't necessarily mean financial. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. It could be impact. So, yeah, absolutely. So, depending on what the, the the sort of intended outcome of the project is. So, I mean, a good example would be like if people, if 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 the government. If DFID's funding um, literacy projects, the the results would be how many people, how many more people have learned to read as a result of this this project. So absolutely, yeah, it doesn't have to be financial results. So I, I think there's there's a shift there. Um, having said that, there are still a lot of philanthropic organisations that will give grants to not-for-profit, community-based organisations. Um, again, I think they tend to want to see a defined social purpose and social impact. Um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think they do change over time, like, so... The climate kick's gone now. So there's, there's movement in yeah. what suddenly become the interests... And with the Agritech Catalyst, I think round six focuses on overseas like development mm. and developing worlds. So that side of things changes as well. But like 10 years ago, there wasn't loads of funding for innovation on this scale. Mm. If you were applying for innovation money, you were a biotechnology company yep. that's got like the cure for cancer and you need to build a whole new facility to process a drug or something. So actually, in a sense, like the <coughs> funding's become more accessible. Yeah. Um, but what hasn't changed is the process that you go through to get it. So you might not be asking for a billion pounds to build this new factory. You might be asking for 500 grand, which is still a huge amount of money, but it's quite different. The risks are really different, and who holds the risks is really different. But the paperwork that goes with that scale of funding is... I mean, I know I said that there's quite a lot of paperwork for this level I think if you're looking for under 100 grand it's almost quite similar for, for two grand as it is for like 50 but as soon as you break that kind of barrier you suddenly get into like amazing amounts of paperwork that are almost quite threatening really when you yeah. first do it and not just threatening but you know so with the <laughs> we have like just as an example when we when we applied for our agritech catalyst um funding there was a very vague um 
very vague phrase in the um, application rules that was something to do with um, have it how you if you were going to spend use the money to spend on um, on capital assets you had to then you had to depreciate them in a certain way I mean that's just an accounting you know depreciation is just an accounting practice it, it, it literally means nothing to your physical kit right you had to depreciate it in a certain way to, to be able to show that um, essentially you were you were getting the most value out of it during the project, not after the project. It was something like that. Anyway, I when we were filling, we'd I think we'd have been offered the, the grant, and then we had to you know there's more paperwork once they offer it to you to prove that you're doing things the right way. So I wrote back to um, they were then called the Technology Strategy Board. It's now Innovate UK, and I said, um, you know, can you tell me what this specific requirement means so that I can make sure that we do this in the right way? Um, and the response I got back was, well. You need to be, literally, this was the, the email, you need, to be conf- you need to be quietly confident that you could go into an EU-level audit and um, be able to produce the paperwork to say you've done this in the right way. And I was like, first of all, who goes into an EU-level audit with any kind of quiet confidence? Like, what does that even mean? And second of all, you won't tell me what the proper way to do it is, so how can I possibly know if what we're doing is the right way or not. And I don't, they weren't being like deliberately difficult or anything. It's just, that is the sort of level of opaqueness, opaqueness that you have to deal with. And that can be quite threatening to think, well, what if I do get audited by the EU? And it turns out I've done this, I've turned out I've done this wrong. And not because I'm trying to steal money from anyone, but just because I'm not an auditor. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, that is, yeah. I, I think I think I would say above fifty grand, not even above hundred grand. That yeah. you're looking at having to potentially deal with some of those things, and that's especially if it's public money. So I mean, I think there is an interesting question of how is that? How is the research funding landscape going to change post Brexit? That's a couple of years away still. So certainly for now. But it really seems to shut that really holding anything close to are. The funding streams are still there, though. Yeah. So the European Marine yeah. Fisheries it's all Fund... St- it's all still there. ...which you'd apply to in Spain, so you're probably less affected than we are here. That, that funding stream, they're not going to wrap it up mm. until this Brexit thing is agreed on formally. And even then, those funding streams, it'll probably be difficult to decide how it works because the UK puts a lot of money into them but also draws a lot of money back out. But I'd say, if anything, it's a good time to apply. Yeah, now. <laughs> because they don't have the t- tenure that they were expecting to have, but they've got money already, so they need to get rid of it. <laughs> it's, good, it's a good time yeah. to do it. But that's very bureaucratic. EMFF, have you looked into that? No. <laughs> we started to do it, and then we were like, because we get most of our equipment secondhand, we're not in the same position in that we so with our model what we wanted to do on this site, having seen a flagship developed, we wanted to say if you had between fifty and hundred grand, which is kind of what most farmers might be able to invest in adding a new process to their farm or the sort of money that if I had a bit of savings I could turn around to my bank with a business plan and <laughs> likely get access to. So with this, we're, we're using a lot of second-hand material and we're kind of making a lot of things. But with the MFF, they want you to get five separate quotes. 
so from five different suppliers for anything that costs more than I think it was five grand but things like the hydroponic shells that you have how many suppliers are there in well, Europe yeah and actually so actually as it happens like all of our ventures are second hand as well yeah so yeah it's definitely worth looking at what the requirements are of certain funding applications in terms of does that actually fit your operating model um for us it was just yeah. the the wide variation between this guy's secondhand stuff and that guy's secondhand stuff. Like how like, would you compare and yeah. yeah. And what do we apply for the most amount or something in the middle that actually might not be enough yeah. when it comes to the point to actually try and do it? It's a bit yeah, it depends on what you're doing really. Like, were yours hydro from Netherlands? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. ventures. I mean actually it, we we looked wherever we could to source secondhand where it was appropriate. Um but the the and I mean the, and the benches are actually a quite big component, so that was good to be able to get those yeah. um, secondhand. Uh, but a lot of the like, for example, a lot of the filtration equipment for the agriculture side of things is it's not custom built. I mean, it's like off the shelf, but actually you order it and then they build it. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's, it's harder to source that kind of thing um, secondhand. Uh, Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's other things to think about in terms of if you're going for, for European funding, and, and this is really, yeah, this is European level funding that we're talking about, um, or, or sort of. I think Innovate UK is actually even sort of one step down from that. But if you're going for the Horizon 2020 or the, the European Fisheries money, um, uh, arguably the application process is designed to whittle out people so the portal that you have to use the European Commission portal online that you have to use is is virtually impossible to navigate if you have a problem it's impossible to find a contact telephone number or email address for a human being to speak to you know all those kinds of things can be really difficult you have to apply for um, like a certain I can't remember what it stands for like what do the PIC codes stand for oh like R O so you can apply for overheads is different from research oh no no no, no, no. this is when you're, when you're registering as an organisation on the portal this is before you even tell them what you want oh, money oh so for. they I give you a PIC code <laughs> And that process takes a while. <laughs> and then when you write the bid, you have to get... If you're doing a collaboration, you need PIP codes from all your collaborators. And if they're small companies, they have to go through the process of filling out this god-awful form <laughs> to get the PIP code before you can even start applying. But yeah, it's pretty hideous. It, yeah. So, you know, it's just lots and lots of, like, this thing. Yeah. And then this thing. And then this it is thing. It, but again, there's no such thing as free money. So, you know, the... So the, that money is there. Look, the reality is, you're, in those applications, you are competing against uh, universities and, you know, the GlaxoSmithKline's and the Syngentas of the world, who have whole teams of people. Their whole, their administrators, and their whole job is writing and administrating grant applications. So, you're, you're you know, yeah. So GSK is still trying to get money for you, and they're making billions. Yeah, yeah, because anybody for this research funding. Because it's. The shareholders, they'll be if they're not doing their best to pay as little tax and get, <laughs> and get as much out of the system as possible. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I'm, that's an I'm using that as an example, but you know, the, the reality is that a lot of these big research projects will be collaborations between, you know, a, a, re a university and uh, an, a commercial, an SME, an S, you know, well, or a corporate, you know, not an yeah. SME, like a big, a big company. They, that's kind of the motivation for those funding streams is to connect research with industry and to promote the industrial sectors in the EU to make sure they're state-of-the-art and can compete on a global scale. So that's, that's why the EU puts money into it. So when you're applying for funding in that context, it's driven by you essentially saying you can make an impact on your sector's standing mm -hmm. on Earth. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard if you're... Um, like this type of project, standalone, wouldn't really fit the EU funding model. It's only because we have the, the research angle and the idea of... We, we're quite similar in that we also want to do like a, a network of farms and enable sort of distributed farming in urban areas and looking at urban metabolism. So it's quite specific then. And you have a vision of, I think the important thing is, you have a vision of how you go from having just one farm to having yeah. lots, and that's what people will often want to see in applications, is that you, you have a plan for how you're going to go for that one to N. So, Shall we have a break? I'm just conscious that... Yeah, I don't even know what the time is. And so I, it's ten past eight. Okay. So my train is at ten to ten. So I will take your advice on when you think I need to leave. Well, there's a train from here to Temple Mead yeah. at half nine then it's about 10, 15 minute walk so, okay. and I'm walking that way okay. so we can sort that sure, I will also, like, also I mean, Alice has my email address so if there's anything that we don't get to cover today but we basically, if we, if we try and actually stop at 9 this week, I know <laughs> that's never happened before but um, so we've got basically kind of 50 minutes but if we just have like a 10 minute break or something mm -hmm. and just it doesn't even need to be that long yeah, yeah, so I'll send you the slides, and yeah. then, as I said, like, and it actually, my last slide does have some links to things that are a bit useful, um, and if there's other things that I've mentioned, like, I will, that jobs for grants, I'm sure it's not called that, I'm sure it's called something else, I will well, look I'll up what that is, and, I'll, and I can send Alice the link. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'll send you the slides, and um, I'm just thinking about other things that I... Um, uh, I put the kettle on. That's a good start. Might be good if you guys think a bit more about what. I'm going to go back to the what, on, like questions you might want to ask Kate while she's here because quite a few of the questions have been not actually funding yeah, related, and funding. I think that's really cool because you're <laughs> one of the only people that has a commercial facility, so you might yeah. as well take advantage of that as well. So yeah. have, a, have a ponder of the best questions. I was going to ask. Um, would it help uh, if we start a small scheme on our own? It's up and running. It might not be profitable 100%, but taking that and then applying for grants and things with it? Well, that's basically what we did, you know, because that we, we had that and then we went to that. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be said for that for, for, for two reasons. Firstly, because it shows in an application that you've got some experience and... and uh, and that you and, and that you've been willing to put the effort and the blood, sweat, and tears in yourself before going for external financing. The other reason why I think it's really important with something like 
at Meconic System is because you will learn so much by building your own small system, actually at any scale, whatever scale you can do it at, you will learn so much by building that first system, by getting it up and running and by doing all the different parts of the, uh, I, I'm going to say business, but you know when I say business, I'm not talking necessarily about a profit business, right? I'm just, yeah. You will learn so many things about all the different parts of that business, you know, the forecasting, the seeding, the customer engagement, the deliveries, the storage, you'll learn about all those things. So when you then come to put a funding application together or you're writing a pitch or whatever it is, you'll have so much more knowledge yourself about what what you really need and, and what you need to focus on next. I think that's you know I think the other thing really that invaluable has that you you learn after is that when you do go the next size up, and we, we haven't been doing this, but I've been seeing it in basically everyone else's projects, that, boom, you open your warehouse and all the kits in, and let's assume that you've magically cycled your whole system so that you can start at scale, completely full. <laughs> Every single customer that you're going to sell to, you're going to have to have had a phone call with, or they're going to have to order from you, so you can't actually scale to maximum capacity from the beginning. It doesn't make sense. You have to grow into your size. And that means that you will start smaller because otherwise you're going to be putting your stock in the bin, which doesn't make sense. So in a way, phasing in... Because it with the shelving that Dermot's got, and probably you guys have done the same, you don't have to use all the shelves at once. So you can start with a few and then add more in. And if you're bringing fish through, depending on what you're rotation model is you could actually grow the fish into the system as you're scaling as well which is that's what we did so we uh, with our 12 tanks what we start we we filled two tanks of fish up per month over six actually more like seven to eight months really so we couldn't we we were then constrained on the produce side of things in terms of what we could grow because of the nutrient uh, levels in the system so yeah, we, we we really took our time scaling up the... Is that what you meant? Yeah, but yeah. also that that kind of fits your marketing model because you can't market a whole warehouse from scratch without having developed the relationships. Yeah. You can't develop the relationships without the product. Yeah. So it, it fits to go in that model. Yeah. And when people have started and tried to start at capacity they then realise that they don't have the client relationships to get rid of the produce that they're growing. And that can that could potentially cripple your business if you're expecting to get revenue and that that's an important part of your model. Unless, like, because you had the box, you had quite a lot of time where you could negotiate new relationships with potential customers. Kind of, although ultimately people were like, yeah, yeah, that's great, come back to us when your farm's up and running. Yeah. So I think you can and you can definitely start to build those relationships when it comes to getting people to actually commit to buying, yeah. I think, you know, so I guess it's sort of in, in the interest of full disclosure, I would say we are around six months behind our projected um, revenue, revenue path, if that makes sense. So it's, taking us, it's taken us six months longer to, to build up than we thought it was going to. And that is for every conceivable reason you can think of. It's for the technical reasons of getting your system to cycle. It's for, you know, stupid things like... Barley shish. Um, no kai. 
<laughs> what are some of the stupid things that we've had to... Uh, yeah, stupid things like um, certain, <laughs> certain customers uh, taking six weeks to reply to an email. Not because there's anything wrong or they're not interested, just because they leave you hanging for six weeks. And like every week you're saying, yep, this could happen next week, so should we start seeding or, you know, uh, through to uh, this thing with the local authority and the approval for the fish taking so long. With, so, with your box before you went mm. to the warehouse, how did that work with the local authority in the Very vaguely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, we, 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 had to, we did register it as a, as, a, as a food business, but because we... Um, were basically what we did with the box was we said we will only sell we will basically only sell the fish on site so we did barbecues at the box so then you're not dealing with any of the processing and moving it's just basically the sort of once you're getting into the once you're transporting dead fish that's that's where the approval comes in so so as far as the plants and that kind of product goes there's not really much no I mean in in the same way that if you wanted to you could plant your garden up and still sell sell the produce that you're growing in your back garden I mean you know the the, the reality is certain customers won't buy from you unless you can demonstrate certain levels of Approval or um, steering from chickens. Yeah. What do you say? Steering from chickens. Cancel chicken. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but but, you know, if you approach local restaurants independently, actually. So I think the only thing we've talked quite a lot about sort of grant funding and government funding and stuff. So I suppose I think the only thing I would like to um, talk about a bit is, and I basically you'll see when I when I send through this. Well, Alice got the slides down we just said she could send to you essentially each um, slide sort of covers a different type of funding and is is mostly a set of questions of like things you'll need to think about if you're going to apply for that kind of funding so you can use these slides sort of on on their own to get your thinking going and then if you have specific questions you can come back to me but um, yeah I think the thing so thinking about social impact investment and equity investment um, bearing in mind that some types of social impact investment are equity investment, those aren't necessarily always going to be two separate things. I guess the the thing to remember with this type of funding. So, if, if you are looking for people to invest in your business and you are going to give them either a a stake in your business or they are going to make a loan to your company and you're you're going to have to pay them back with interest based on the revenues of your your business. Um, the thing to think about with with that is about all of the preparation that you need to do in order to approach those people. So, um, you know, everybody, any investor, whether they're an individual, whether they're an angel network, whether they're a fund, whether they're a... Oh, I think that's kind of the three, actually. <laughs> you know... The, they're going to want a, uh, an executive summary. That's the first thing they're going to want to see, a two-pager that explains who you are, what the business is, what you're raising money for, and what you're offering, basically. And then they're going to want a business plan. And then they're going to want a detailed financial model. And then they're going to want to ask you questions about the valuation of the business and how you know what sort of percentage you're then offering them for their investment. And so a lot of these things... You have, to ha- you have to have put in the work up front to produce all of those documents 
before you can even think really about approaching people because otherwise they just there's no conversations up to be had now again when you were asking before about um, just sort of getting on and building something you know the huge advantage that that we now have is that when we're approaching people with the fundraising that we're doing yes we send them all the documents but we say well you should really come and see the farm you know and it's having that tangible uh, uh, those tangible operations to show people is, is really is really valuable but as valuable as that is you still have to have all of the paperwork um, approval concept yes yeah. there's so like that, a whole section in a business plan like dedicated to like like test of model like results, feedback, feedback loop. Yeah. Manipulation. Like, are you making revenue from it? How much? What sort of capacity are you operating at? So they they want to, people want to see all that evidence, Mm -hmm. but actually if you can actually show them something in real life. Yeah. Do anything with a bank. Like, they won't even look at you if you don't have, like, a business plan of some description. Yeah. So you'll notice that among all of those different types of fundings that we've gone for, none of them include bank, banks. (laughs) Um... Triodos uninterested because we're not organic. Um, every now and then we go back to them and say, is that still the case? And it's mostly still the case. So. Uh, well, again, so that's sort of along the crowdfunding lines. Um, do you mean for like someone like Funding Circle? Yes. Yeah. So no, not we're not looking at that right now. It would potentially be a, be, a, be a, a, an option, but really with that kind of funding, they want to see quite strong existing revenue streams already. Okay. So you have to be quite far down the line in your operations in order to be able to have the the revenue to to prove that you can pay so more money. So you've got um, a straw roof. And you want to upgrade to a tin roof for the last five years instead of a year, um, you'll be able to get that money for your house. Yes, so that is kind of different. The, the returns model, I think, for investors for that kind of investment. For peer to peer. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, it's still the, ret- the return is the same. The returns model is the same regardless of who's lending you the money. Um, it is different than a, than like a going concern of a business that has to. So, I think like with the with the roof example, my guess is that the reason why people would lend you the money to replace your roof is because with a with a tin roof, your building's more efficient, so your energy costs are going to be less, and it would last longer. It would last longer, right? So your repairs less money right. over time. Whereas with a going a business that's a, a business that's a going concern you have to put money in do something with it and be able to demonstrate that you can make money by selling what you're doing so it's a much riskier it's a much riskier return okay. and so a lot of those a lot of the banks and the i think with the peer-to-peer lending as well they want you to be able to prove that you can already do that before they'll give you the money it's a bit chicken and egg but that's not to say it's not worth trying having a conversation sorry going um, back just a, sec, a little bit they said they don't think that this is organic organic like certified. as in certified organic yes so under EU legislation um, plants in order to be like 
plants in order to be certified organic have to be grown in soil in the ground. It's partly why the governing body in the UK is the Soil Association who grant organic standards. So they're not interested in certifying um, hydroponic production. And it just happens that Triodos Bank, who are a good ethical bank, their investment policy for, far, for agriculture is linked to supporting organic farming. But so we might change that. Because yeah, BACWA uh, might become an organisation that can certify something like organic. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to work on it, and that's one of the sessions in the conference and convention in September, is a meeting between the network of aquaponic producers um, to discuss how we're going to... Well, what we want from certification, because even the Soil Association's certification was producer-driven. It was just quite a long time ago. So we, we're in a position to do the same thing, and it's quite nice to actually have a bit of control mm. over that process while it's not like now, if you went back to the Soil Association to try and make their certification more friendly for smaller producers, they're not going to do it. So, yeah, it's a nice position to be in. I think it's needed as well, so we see what we can do. Mm. The problem is, is that there's lots of different types of culture. It could be earthen ponds, it could be plastic tanks, it could be lots of different materials mm. and the organic sector is quite interested in like how materials leach, so at the moment they won't certify anything that's in plastic, so the pipe work of hydroponics tends to be plastic so mm. it might be that we look at like naturally produced or sustainably produced or ethically produced and that that becomes a catch-all for and then we need to decide what standards we think fit with that. Mm. So you can't just be naturally produced without any kind of system beneath mm. it, behind it. Anyway, it's yeah. another conversation. Oh, that's probably like a whole another course of like it on its own, in its own right. Like a whole we'll course do it uh, at the back yeah. of the convention and see where we get with yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's I think it's really interesting. Um, so that was why that particular bank not interested in again. Generally speaking, with the banks, you know, like if you go on any bank's website, uh, like any of the big banks, so HSBC, Lloyd, Barclays, NatWest, they're all like, we want to support small businesses, we want to support entrepreneurs. But if you actually apply for them for any money, they're like, but you need to have been trading for three years and be able to show profit for three years before we'll lend you any money. <laughs> so, like, what's the point? You know? Yeah, but even these uh, EU, England, whatever, who are giving these grants. Surely you've gone to them and said this is kind of organic. Is that well, no, definitely not, because we can't be certified organic, so we don't want to go anywhere near the word organic in case people think that we're trying to claim that we are organic when we can't be certified. Mm. Mm. So we talk about the... Um, all right. <laughs> it's rough round here. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever tries to take my car though <laughs> we talk about the how the system is resource efficient how it's water efficient how by controlling the environment we can uh, grow consistent quality and quantity of food all year you know there's lots of positives you could how how it's locally produced how it gets to the con to customers within 12 hours of harvest there's plenty of things you can talk about plenty of benefits without needing to talk about it being organic. 
Which um, funding source would you suggest if you're looking for funding on behalf of someone else's project? So, as in, are you thinking in a situation where you would like to do a piece of work for somebody and in order for them to pay you, they have to apply for funding? Yeah, or I can essentially pay for my own wages out of like my, my own um, profits. Um, but they would need to provide the like materials or something like that, or additional labour. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see. I see. So I think um, having a, you have to have a really clear picture of what the what that financial model looks like is mm-hmm. the first thing. So um, that you know it sounds silly, but like have that really clearly laid out in terms of whose responsibility it is to provide what and yeah. how much is that going to cost. Yeah. Um, and then I would say, depending on who the different organisations are that are involved. So, for example, yeah, if it, it will, so, if your part, if that partner is a charity, they're going to be able to access certain yeah. funds yeah. that maybe you wouldn't as a mm-hmm. as a business or a social enterprise. But equally, if if they're a com- you know, maybe they're a community group, but they're not registered, but you're the you're a registered kick or something. Actually, yeah. it would make sense for your organisation to apply for the yeah, yeah. To, for the funding. Um, generally speaking, um, funders like partnership applications. Between I think them, yeah. I think they like seeing that you're collaborating with someone else. That's mm-hmm. quite good. So, be kind of open up and upfront about that. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think then the fact that it is you applying on behalf of someone else is actually kind of irrelevant. It's more about understanding what's the requirement to work out then what the best funding to go for is. Um, Yeah, but certainly, uh, you know, there are some foundations that will only give money to charities or Mm -hmm. profits and it's worth understanding what you can leverage. And the Charity Commission's rules have changed this year. Have they? Yeah, so what they can and can't fund has changed. I mean, whoever the funder is will have it in their guidance anyway, but I yeah. think it's harder now to get core funding for what would have been your operational costs outside right. of the specifics of what you're applying for. Right. So if I'm applying for this place and I've already got a farm manager that has to be here and that's already part of the business plan, I've already supposedly got funding for that even though they're not walking around here I can't apply for their salary I could only apply for salary that relates to the extension of impact from the point of the funding so it's all getting very complicated I mean it makes sense because they're impact motivated they don't want to fund things that don't extend impact so 